0: Welcome to another episode of Tyrannus Hall, where we endeavor to make the Great Commission every Christian's passion and every church's mission. Today, Winston and I are going to be talking with two musicians about the role of music in the church today, and we have two distinguished guests with us that I'm very happy to introduce. We have Mr. Kent Dykstra from the West Coast, and Kent is the principal of Credo Christian High School. He's also a church musician. He also runs the Reformed String Camp, which has been out west for years, has been out east off and on. And from what I hear, he's uh, planning on returning Reform String Camp to the East, and so a lot of people here are going to be excited about that. Welcome, Kent.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: And then we have uh, Mr. Tim Neinheis. Tim was a high school teacher for a number of years, music director at Blessings Christian Church, also a longtime church musician. He is continuing his education, pursuing a degree in film scoring at the Berklee School of Music in Boston. We're excited to have Tim join us as well. Welcome, Tim.
2: Thanks for having me. appreciate being here.
0: And now, Winston, welcome to you, Winston. And you will uh, unveil for us what exactly we're going to be talking about today. All right. So
3: here's sort of the, the big question that we want to think about. Do we need to change anything about our music in our worship services in order to be more missional? But before we jump into that, there's there's a whole bunch of questions that would be related to that. So I'm wondering if any of you gentlemen would like to speak to this. Why is it that this particular topic, the question of music in our worship services, why is this such a touchy topic? Why is this something that gets people's, you know, ire up or emotions flaring? Like, why does this in particular get people excited?
1: I don't mind to start there, Tim, if, if I can go first. Go for it. Yeah. And uh, I have a funny feeling, Tim, that you and I are going to be on the same page on this one because music is simply close to people's hearts. I have a, a colleague uh, across the street who, who is a principal of a uh, of a sister school who also is, a, is an elder in his church. And just yesterday, he and I were talking about a visit that he was making to uh, someone who was on their deathbed. And when someone is unresponsive, there's very little that you can do. There's, there, you can talk, but you're not sure that they understand. But what, they, what he did was <clears throat> exactly what I would have done, which is sing and pray. And music has that ability to reach the soul, I think, in a way that simple speaking might not. And because of that, I think it's also close to the hearts and souls of many, of, of many Christians. And the, the music traditions or the, the music that they enjoy is, is very close to their hearts. And change for them is is going to be, is going to be difficult.
3: All right. Well then, then, yeah, that, that makes so much sense to me. I was just this past week, I visited an aged person in my congregation who, whose memory is gone. But if I sing psalms to her, she just you know, brightens up and she loves that. Let's talk about, you know, when we're talking about music, what is it exactly that we're talking about when we're talking about music in church? We're not talking about psalms versus hymns. We're not talking about the words or the, the lyrics. You know, we all have this desire in common to sing scripture, to sing, you know, gospel saturated, you know, content in our songs. But when we're talking about the music itself, Tim, maybe you can answer this one. Like I'm just a lay guy who knows nothing about music. When we're talking about music, what is it that we're talking about?
2: I think um what most people uh, would refer to within the context of of worship music is uh, like the melodies right I think that's the melodies are the structures that people remember and just to tie into the previous question like the older older folks or people with a long history of being exposed to music respond to music that that they've heard all their life and it's the melodies that that are the most prominent part of it and uh, when you discuss music within the church and particularly within the canadian Reformed church it, it's the melodies that people are passionate about that they're really connected to most people in our church have grown up with these melodies from early on they're reinforced through education and through repeated sunday use so they're really imprinted in in our brains
0: I'd like to ask a question there because you do discern in different communities some resistance to this, you know, deposit of melodies that we've inherited. And for some, it's striking because these melodies have been loved in communities for centuries. And now all of a sudden, there's some unhappiness about them and some resistance to them. And I'm not a musicologist or a music historian, but I wonder if the internet has something to do with this, the information age and the wide exposure that people today have to other kinds of church music that has perhaps created some of the distaste that we see right now. Maybe I'll I'll begin with you, Kent, perhaps just talk a little bit about the evolution of music in the church and, and whether this is in fact true that people today have a a much wider exposure to music and that this might then account for some of the distaste that people have with particular traditions. And I don't think it's just a Canadian reformed phenomenon that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a great question. And there's no doubt, of course, that people today would be exposed to a much wider variety and range of of music than they would have been prior to the advent of the internet or prior to inventions like the, you know, the record player, even. And so there's there's definitely no doubt about that. As far as as far as dissatisfaction or or distaste, I appreciate a bill that you, you say, you know, there is some in the Canadian Reformed community, but it's not limited to the Canadian Reformed either. And you alluded to that in your question. There would be some in, I would say, every church community, no matter what music they're using, there would be some people that would yearn for something different, whether that's more traditional or less traditional, whatever it is. But, but the, the point, I think, is what you're saying is we are exposed to a wider variety of music. And therefore, we can kind of imagine what it would be like to use some of that music in our formal uh, worship services, and and I'm going to try my best during our conversation to to talk about our formal worship services because I think that's what that's what the purpose of this of this of this talk is. We're not talking about w- what we listen to in the car on the way on the way home. I'll stop there. I realize I haven't answered your entire question yet, but Tim might have something on on uh, on this one.
0: If not, yeah. I'll keep talking. Well, and let me reword yeah, it love for. Let me reword it for you, Tim. You know, there have always been young people in the church, always been youth. And is it the case that now we're seeing a generation with dissatisfaction that didn't exist before? Or is this just part of an ongoing cycle that it's always been present?
2: I don't think it's a cycle, but it is definitely a development. And I'll try to answer it very quickly. I could go on about this for hours, but If you look at the beginning of the Reformed Church in the in the 16th century, from the 1500s on to probably the early 1900s, the only exposure that church people had to music was the music, live music, live performances of music, and most Christians remain like only experienced that live music within the church. It wasn't common to go to concerts. You may have some folk tunes at the home or on the street. But with the advent of recorded music, all of a sudden, people started to get a little bit more control over music. Then with the radio and particularly the transistor radio, you started seeing um, a development where an older generation had a different uh, menu of music versus the younger generation young kids could drive a car and listen to their own music and they could bring a radio to the beach and listen to music away from the parents and at that time in the 50s and 60s it was rock music which was considered rebellious so that's where you see the beginning of music becoming connected to different generations and then the next development is the walkman you could try, like before the walkman you would sit in the car with the family, all listening to the same radio station. But with the Walkman, suddenly the kids in the same car could listen to different music. And that's gone even further now with Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, you name it. You can handcraft the exact music that you want to listen to. So the there's a lot more control over what you are exposed to. And you're constantly exposed to music all over the place. It's not limited to the church, but... of the music you're exposed to is from outside the church. So if the musical language within the church is very different from the musical language that you're exposed to, the other 95% of the time, there's going
3: to be a conflict. Okay, can can I jump in here? Because this this is making me think of an analogy. So I'm remembering the book, The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. And that's The Omnivore's Dilemma is when you can eat everything, what should you eat? And he speaks about in that book, how we are now experiencing just the last couple of generations in the, in the history of humanity for the very first time, we eat different things than our parents ate. So it used to be that you just like, you know, if you were of Dutch background, you ate potatoes and vegetables, boiled the snot out of them with a bit of nutmeg on top. And the generations ate that and every culture had figured out what they could use around them in order to eat a well-balanced diet. And now we've got a situation where you can eat anything and so people don't know what to eat and so now you've got all kinds of obesity problems and you've got health problems because people have lost that generational knowledge that's been passed down now i'm wondering listening to you guys talk whether or not you can make an analogy to music in that it used to be that well the music the good music that we listen to is the music that our grandparents listened to or you know that you know perhaps slight changes but the music that we found at church in the village and now we've got a huge amount of music that we can listen to would you say that there's an analogy in saying no oh, that we are in danger of knowing what music to play in church or what music to listen to. Is it, is it just a matter of like, it's all about personal taste or is there, when it comes to church music, worship music, is there still something that you would say, well, this is more healthy or this will avoid you becoming, you know, uh, musically obese or something like that.
0: What is the gold standard for music? (laughs)
3: there is
2: there is a gold standard for music and there is hope let's let's uh, be positive about this there is god created our ears in such a way that there's certain notes that are most pleasing to our our ear to our brain and the notes that are most pleasing are based on the pentatonic scale five notes if you approach a piano and just hit the black notes even if you hit all the black notes Randomly, it still sounds pleasing to the ear to a certain extent. And those five notes are the common fingerprint or the golden standard in every musical uh, tradition across the globe. So if we want to bring people together, I really believe that if we use melodies that are based on the pentatonic scale, those five notes, we will accomplish that. And within the church tradition, Amazing Grace, In Christ Alone how deep the father's love for us and very closely to that the me- the melody the old 100th that we use for it for praise god from whom all blessings flow it's not quite pentatonic but really close those are melodies that everybody knows everybody can sing to even if you don't know the melody very well you could still sing along and it sounds quite
0: pleasing so so just to 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 butt in here tim you're saying there are certain notes that are more pleasing, and then you concluded with singability because of these notes, they are more singable. Kent, could you comment on that? What, what makes a song singable? I think we've all encountered songs that are not singable, but what constitutes a good singable song? Is, is there more than the, the pentatonic uh, scale, or, or is that, is that it?
1: You know, I, I'm smiling as you're asking the question because just a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a uh, a, a radio commentator, and this happened to be a music expert. And his the the, the subject was the song "What's the Matter with Bruno?" You know that <laughs> I don't. He was yeah. wondering what is making this song so popular, and why is every single three year old kid singing the song while they're brushing their teeth. And I'm laughing because just a couple of days ago, somebody was was uh, was humming it as they were going down the hall. What is it about certain tunes or certain certain music that makes it memorable and uh, and easy to sing? In some ways, I really appreciate what Tim has said. The the music that is based on a simple scale, and he gave some examples, and is going to be, I think, simpler and also. In many cases, more. But there's also. I still. I. I think there's also some debate still. I think. It, I think it's still up for grabs in the sense that there is a lot of stuff out there that we that we that we can know, we can sing, we can memorize, that we don't really know why it's it's uh, it's that way. So. Tim is right that there's a lot of, of recent music, a lot of popular songs that we like He used in Christ Alone, for example, that uses that simple scale that will be more memorable and, and, and easier to sing. Many people say that the, the existing tunes that we have, the Psalms and hymns that we have, uh, the Geneva Psalter, but also the, many of the hymns, are simple and easy to sing because of the, uh, because of the rhythms, right? They tend to be simple rhythms. The, the stepwise, often they're, they're, they go by step rather than by large leap. I think there's some truth to that, but, but, but that's not always true either. And I think it, there are some other musical elements in our existing collection of psalms and hymns that in some ways make it more difficult to, memorize, to, to, to remember and sing. Meter, for example, how are, the, how are the rhythms grouped? And I know we don't want to get too technical here, so I so I won't. I, I just think that the, the question of what is memorable and what is singable is not one that we're going to that we're going to answer in a, in a few minutes here, even though we can distill some important principles like Tim has.
3: OK, can we you know, if our broad question is do we need to change anything about our music in order to be mission focused as a church? Or what role does music play in the worship service of a church that wants to be intentionally on mission to its neighbors? You've mentioned singability. So I'm, I'm guessing that we're saying singability has got to be near the top of the list in terms of when we think about music, also for the mission of the church, we got newcomers that come in. Singability is a, is a big one. Is there anything else that you would add to that list?
1: Uh, I think there's something else that we can that we can talk about in addition to singability, and I think that's the connection to to church history, and I think music is something that in a formal worship setting can connect us to different times and places of, of Christendom. It's one thing that I really love about the Geneva Psalter that it harkens, it brings us back to that time of the Reformation when Calvin was saying, "How are we going to worship?" As a newly reformed church. And of course, there's there's other uh, times and places too that our are, that are, are, our hymn section, for example, reminds us of. But I know that's been one criticism of the of the existing collection that we have, that it doesn't necessarily reflect all as well as it could all the different um, time periods in in, in church history. I, I think that's a fair, I think it's a fair thing to say. It's a fair criticism. And I also know that our synods, for example, at least in the Canadian Reformed Church, have tried to propose a variety of church music and words that does connect to different periods in church history and different areas uh, of the world. I think that's important.
0: Kent, uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on it. Winston. You got to let me push back on, on Kent here. You know, so. I agree that it's a wonderful thing to have a connection to the church in history via music. But at the same time, I'm very concerned about people who want to transform music designed for worship into some kind of historic relic. So to me, I would say, yes, let's honor the the history of music in the church. And the way we might do that is by having a periodic concert where we say, we're going to feature music from the church in the 15th century, and maybe another time music from the church in the 16th century. I'm not sure worship is the place to, to honor the contributions of, of musicians in the past, especially when the songs themselves aren't that. Singable. And I would add Kent, and you you might agree with me here that it's not only the church and history that we want to connect to. I, I could also make a case that we want to connect to the global church today. Maybe that means incorporating African music or Asian music. But even there, I, I'm hesitant because, well, that's very idealistic, but what if it impedes the ability of a congregation to sing today? Tim, can we engage you on that reflect a little bit on, on Ken's suggestion and my modest pushback and and what are your own thoughts on that?
2: So just to connect some of the topics that we were already covered, we talked about singability. I think singability is very closely connected to being missional and to answer Winston's question, should we change something in order to be more missional singability what we didn't cover is repetition. What makes a song singable is repetition as well. I've, had, I've, I've published articles on this topic and I've, I've heard the, the pushback from more traditional thinkers within our church community that say the Genevan Psalms are very singable. I have no musical education whatsoever, but I can show up at church and sing these songs. And the key is a repetition. If you grow up, singing this year after year after year after year after year anything is teachable anything is singable but for the outsider it's a foreign concept and uh, yeah we really do have to address the singability what makes the more contemporary songs more singable as well is because within them you find repetition right and that is absent from a lot of the genevan tunes In some of the Genevan tunes, every single line has a completely different contour and a different meter, a different number of syllables per line. That's what, what is referred to with meter. It's poetic meter. And that makes them last universal. So it's harder for people that are not steeped in that tradition to participate in worship. But I'll say I'll have an equal argument to some of the contemporary worship music. Because another factor that makes music singable is predictability in rhythm and in in melodic contour. A lot of contemporary worship songs are very high. They are very syncopated. They have very unpredictable rhythms. And what you end up having is a professional show of musicians on a stage and worshipers that are just watching them perform and are also unable to participate. So it goes both ways.
3: Kim, do you want to say anything about the idea of hey, we should another factor should be it should our our worship our musical style or our music in church should attach us to the past?
1: Yeah, I, I Bill knows that I appreciate a lot of what he says. I'm going to, the I'm going to use a concept that you brought up, Winston, to to push back a little in turn, and that is the the back to the omnivore's dilemma. Right? It, are we going to simply pick because the the, the very the very nature of corporate worship is that it can't be individualistic. Somebody has to choose what the congregation is going to sing. We can't have everybody in the pew choosing their own type of music that they're that they're going to be singing. So we are forced into, and I think this is a good thing because this this is the nature of corporate worship. We're forced into choosing what what is it that 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 we're going to, to sing, and I think I I, I still think that that um, only choosing what is what is uh, popular at, at one particular time in history or one particular area of the world? I think is I think limits us, and, and I think there's more to it than that. I think that we can we can get more out of our music than something that is simply singable or simply easy to listen to. So there's a there's we'll we'll arrive at an agreement somehow. But
0: uh you know, Kent, uh, I really like the way you put that. And I'm very much inclined to agree with that. But then I would be the one to say, let's have a representation of music, not just from the 16th century, if we're able, 13th century, I don't know that we're able to do that, but at least 18th century, maybe 19th century, let's have a bit of a diversity. And then, you know, those of us who are leading worship can say to a congregation, hey, look, congregation, this is really, really special. We're going to sing a song uh, about the cross. You know, that Christians centuries ago, we're, we're going to sing the, the very same music. It might be a little awkward and different for you to sing, but there's meaning in joining voices with the church in the past. I can go with that so long as we see more of a fair distribution of music from across the centuries, and which is exactly the the argument that you anticipated earlier.
2: Hmm. Yeah, yeah and- I totally agree with uh, Kent, and I agree with you too, Bill. I think we would impoverish ourselves if we limit ourselves to either 16th century renaissance melodies or what is on the radio and there is a case to be made to make worship music different from what people are exposed to the rest of of the week in fact when recently they interviewed non-christian and what they would expect to experience in a church setting is
3: more traditional music so yeah yeah so we've talked about singability we've talked about repetition as something that's that's helpful for people in church and for newcomers. We've talked about, you know, we seem to be sort of coming to some sort of agreement that perhaps some sort of some sort of representation of music from different ages and different places, you know, would have its place. I'm a little bit I end up being a little bit doubtful about that last one, just in that it seems to me that churches that have tried to say, well, we're going to have a mix of traditional music and more modern music. I see multiple churches end up splitting into two services. They have a traditional service and a contemporary service, or one just sort of dominates the other, or they do one well and one poorly. And sometimes I I sort of just wonder, uh, pick pick a, a tradition and say, this is our tradition, you know this this is this is what we do in our church it's not the only way it's not necessarily the best way we're not looking down on other traditions that do it different but in our tradition we we do it like this, and then at the same time, I, it, I I understand and it resonates with me the idea of saying, you know, trying to sample from a broader a broader global scope, and not to speak of anything about the idea of when you worship together as the church militant here on Earth, you do so with the church triumphant in heaven, and so singing ancient songs. Like I tell people, you know, yeah, we're gonna sing Psalms, like covenant people of God have been doing for you know how many thousands of years. And, you know, it's still praise him in heaven with the with the same words. So, yeah. What, anybody got any thoughts about that? Maybe we should you should just pick a tradition and say this is this is who we are.
1: I, I, I have my, my heart I, in my heart. I have some sympathy for what you just said. I, I do. And that's I think and it's partly because of what Tim has been talking about. And that is what, what do you grow up with? And, and we said this right off the top, too. Music tends to enter your heart. It, it's difficult to to get out, and you you are partial often to the the musical heritage that, that you've grown up with. But I think there's two things in what you've just said that 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 I want to draw out, and they're a little bit they're a little bit different. So we might go down two different rabbit trails here, good rabbit trails, mind you. The first one is the first one is should we just focus on on, on one tradition? And I guess my comment would be perhaps, but the direction at least in the Canadian Reform Church is currently. If you look at the agenda of the upcoming synod, is that we are looking at different tunes for some of our psalms. We are looking at an increased selection of hymns that definitely, in my view, anyway, has a much greater cross section of history and culture. So we're definitely moving in that direction. For some of us, it's not fast enough. For some of us, I know. For some of us, it's too fast. But that's that's I think the consensus that's emerging amongst our uh, amongst our churches. So. Like it or not, some of us do, some of us don't. We are moving in that direction. The other thing that I want to bring out, and I'll leave it to the moderators to decide which which way they want to go on this one, but is there a value to being distinctive? And Winston, you alluded to that just a minute ago. Should the average person who walks into a church, should they hear something that they're familiar with? Or should they hear something that, hey, this is different. This is not the music I'm hearing on the street corner or on the radio. This is different. Is that a positive thing or is that a negative thing? I'll leave it there.
0: Well, you know, I would be one to say that one's experience in the church should be distinctive. It should be apparent that one in coming to worship is crossing a border and entering a culture which is very different from the culture out there, so to speak. And so that ought to be reflected in music. I, I'm just not sure it means melodies per se. It might mean more about how the music is played, what the stage looks like, the extent to which there's entertainment. I, I mean, Tim once shared with me that Musicians never really compose in a vacuum, but their heads are full of influences. And the fact is, we are immersed in a culture with a particular kind of music. And so, this is the way perhaps we understand music. And if we're to reach people today, I think we need to speak that kind of musical language. So, I I agree. And yet, I I don't agree, and I, I'd be curious to hear what what Tim would say about this precise issue. So I'm choosing one of the one of the rabbit trails, Kent. To, to what extent should the music of the church be distinctive, as you know, an alternative culture? What, what what might that look like? What are some advantages and maybe disadvantages to distinctiveness in music, Tim?
2: Well, we talk about tradition, we talk about distinction, and when you talk about tradition, you could narrow that down to what kind of melodies we have, but I would rather look at tradition in a way of how we approach music. And and what makes the Canadian Reformed Church distinctive in my experience, having um, performed music in various different church cultures, what makes the Canadian Reformed Church distinctive is the passion and the ability with which they sing. We have a tradition of really appreciating and encouraging Singing as a whole. So, the fact that we sing as well as we do makes us distinct from many other traditions. But we need to be able to share that tradition with everyone around us. We need to find ways to build bridges to the cultures that surround us and the visitors that come into our church services. And that's when we talk about musical language that you alluded to. Our language, when we, when we when you you and Winston preach in a missional way, you're very aware of the language so that people understand what you're trying to convey. And we have to have that same attitude uh, towards music. So the distinction is that we sing really well, but let's learn how to share that with the rest of the world.
3: That's good. So we, we've got singability, repetition, it's interaction. Sh- should we be distinctive? You're, you're saying let's take the distinction of passionate singing, But make sure that we're doing that in a way that's share is easily shareable, that people can be gathered into that so that people can hear the words and that people can, you know, through the singing also hear the gospel. I I have a I have a question that I'd like to ask you guys. So when I stand in church and I sing a song and my little kid is you know, messing around with something or, you know, ask me a question in the middle of the the song, it kind of discourages me because I'm like, I'm trying to, I'm having a vertical moment here. Like I'm worshiping God and you're distracting me from that. And it's bothersome. I get irritated. I get to teach in Africa every once in a while. And their singing in the, in the worship services really has this really horizontal level to it, where you encourage one another with Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so People sing to God, but they also sing more to each other. And there's an interactive thing. People can smile at each other. Or if somebody asks a question or has to hop out of the service and then come back in again, it doesn't really bother anybody. You know, it's got a vertical element and a horizontal element. I perceive that in, in the Canadian form tradition, we have people tend to enter the, the, the church building with this sense of now I'm in the vertical mode. So silence before the service, meditative, singing to God, don't look at other people while you're doing that necessarily. Can you guys speak to, to, is there any way that we could encourage or any way the music can play a role to sort of help us with the horizontal element of it, where we encourage one another with music?
1: Uh, I, I, first of all, I really like the, I like the way you explained the difference between the horizontal and the, and the, and the vertical. And it reminds me of, of, you know, speak to each other with Psalm, and spiritual songs, right? So the idea of the horizontal aspect of of music, even in the worship services, I think is a scriptural is a scriptural one. But you know, I, I've 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 used this analogy on, uh, on on home visits and discussions with some of my students as well. I think actually, Winston, we do have a, a, a horizontal element. Maybe it's not as strong as what you. Uh, perceive in, in, in Africa. But I think there is a horizontal element there. <clears throat> I, I like to say to students sometimes, would it work if we would worship instead of all together, but we would just worship each in our own little boxes? Because then really you could sit however you want, you could eat what you want, you wouldn't distract anybody. You could even, like you said, get up and, and go for a minute and come back and nobody would be nobody would be the wiser. Wouldn't that be better? I, I think no. And, and the, the, peop- the kids that I talk to, of course, say, no, 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 we got to be together. And that means we still see each other. So when I'm singing in church, it's, yes, it's for God. In fact, I would even say, yes, it's for God, first of all. But, but I, I think that we are also singing for each other, also in our own uh, church services. So, so yeah, I think, I think I would disagree a little bit on, on the extent of the, of the vertica- verticality in, in our own tradition.
3: Yeah, I'm kind of wondering when I'm in, when I'm in Burkina Faso, they do lots of their songs are guys sing, women sing, you know, taking turns, different verses, there's call and response within the song where the song's asking a question, people respond, you know, there's choruses, you know, there, so that there's, there's multiple parts played, and people look at each other as the other people are singing, it seems to that seems to reinforce the horizontal nature. So in my mind, somewhere I was like, I wonder if there's, if that would be an improvement. I don't know, you got any thoughts on that, Tim?
2: Yeah, it's singing singing together, singing to each other while giving thanks to God, it should all connect and it should be inclusive. And I think we can learn how to do that better as well. I don't really have a quick solution for that. But what you could do is, and I I know I'm opening a can of worms here, so stop me if, if you have to. But when you think of instrumentation in the worship service, if, if we limit uh, the musical leadership to simply an organ, we are excluding a lot of people that have other musical abilities, like playing the guitar or the flute or the violin. I think if we expand that as well, we can be more inclusive. We can tap into the talent that is in the pew, and we can even be more together singing, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it certainly does, Tim. And one of the things I really enjoy about worship at blessings are the multiple musicians on the stage, each contributing to the sacrifice of praise. You know, Winston, it strikes me that in the Bible, if you read the Psalms, it's clear that these Psalms were sung antiphonally or that there were different parties singing. I mean, there is the the, the strong conjecture on the part of Bible scholars that in some Psalms, you would have had the Levitical leaders singing part of the Psalm and the priests responding with other parts, and then maybe choruses sung by people all together. Now, that's not something that we have done much of in our tradition, but I think we do with hymns occasionally. In fact, uh, "O Church Arise," you know, where, you know, sometimes the women sing to the men and the men sing to the women. It wouldn't be that hard to implement that kind of vertical, horizontal nature to worship that would really honor the the text that you find in both Ephesians and Colossians that Kent mentioned about. Singing to one another with psalms, hymns, and and spiritual songs. I, I mean, do either of you had have, have you either of you had any experience with you know what is termed antiphonal singing in worship?
3: I certainly have. in In my old church, we would we would do that, and we would get two people would stand up on the front on either side to lead the different sections for for certain songs. And yeah, I think that combined with multiple instruments, like Tim is talking does make it sort of it emphasizes the horizontal element to it yeah hmm. I, I have another question yeah, that kid, I oh sorry go ahead Tim yeah I'll
2: answer this quickly as a kid growing up in a slightly different reformed tradition there were moments where the liturgy indicated that the men would sing the women and the children would sing and that did elevate my attention as a child like oh it's my turn to sing I have to pay attention now and it it did involve me more in the worship music than if we had just you know, saying it in unison throughout.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I have done it occasionally, very occasionally. My my problem, and, and this is my problem, not not the problem of the person leading the worship or the the uh, the pastor who has chosen to do it this way. But my problem is that as soon as that happens, I'm focused on, oh, this is this is different, right? And and I'm I'm losing the I'm losing the reason that we're actually mm-hmm. that we're actually singing it maybe that just means we don't do it enough because maybe maybe once we do it a few times, I would be able to focus on instead of, okay, what's going on. I'd be able to focus on, on the, on the text and the, and the, and the music. So yeah, it's rare.
3: Yeah. That brings that back that question of repetition again. Yeah. So here's, here's a question I have, because we're talking about music and the mission of the church or trying to be a missional church. So what do you think about the validity of something like this? So, I'm in Ottawa. Ottawa is the capital city. Ottawa has lots of museums. It has art galleries. It has concert venues. It has a lot of people that work for the federal government. It has people that like to go see classical music and plays and that type of thing. And personally, I mean, this is not the, the position of, of my church, but personally, I would think that it makes sense for Jubilee Canadian Form Church to try to maintain uh, sort of a classical musical style that we like i would i don't want to have a drum set in my church i'm not keen on having you know an electric guitar i would like to have uh classical you know instruments which is what we do you know we got you know it's the easter weekend coming up from where we're recording this and so we're gonna have a cello and violins and a flute and we'll have perhaps a bass guitar and, and piano but i don't i you know whereas i think if i go to blessings you're going to see something entirely different and you're in a different context and no offense uh, bill but i i don't think i'd want to have you know all the instruments that you have on stage in ottawa just from a missional it's, it's, perspective. It's
0: it's okay Winston. We we can we can tolerate your elitist perspective.
3: <laughs> you know that <laughs> you know you're the former pastor with you Hilmer Jacob. he's always bugging me like oh Winston where are you going to wear the when are you going to wear the liturgical robes and I would say yeah I know you can't wear those cuz you'll just trip over all the guitar chords on your stage so <laughs>
2: well i guess we're looking at a difference between ottawa and hamilton and i'll tell you from my own experience playing in pubs and restaurants in the hamilton area being very much connected to the local music scene it is amazing how many of the pub musicians are actually church musicians on sunday so there's a definite connection between how uh how they play in church and and what they bring to the city.
3: Yeah. So that's my question. Like, so yeah. Any other thoughts on that saying, okay, we can talk about singability and repetition and we could talk about, you know, different styles and they're being distinctive and whatnot, but what about its uh, contextualization to particular places that you're trying to do mission? It's a hard question because within Ottawa, there's a big diversity of people too. So what's it going to look like if we're working in a neighborhood with new Canadians that come from, you know, Southeast Asian countries. So you can't contextualize perfectly, but nevertheless, can you, does it make sense to say, okay, we're going to approach it with a particular musical style for this particular area?
2: I can add something else to that. There are some churches that actually have like an evening service, like a Vesper service, and they, they advertise it as a jazz Vespers. So they are trying to reach people that are into jazz music and then have a jazz style music in the worship service. So it could actually be a way to invite people that are exposed to a certain musical culture to, to come in. So that's a great idea of contextualizing the music. You could also have, be more traditional and have a choir participate in worship and advertise it as such so that people that are into choral music feel more inclined to, to attend the worship service.
0: This is precisely what Tim did at blessings for the, the better part of a year. Every week, of the month in our Vesper service, he accented a different style of music. So it was jazz music one Sunday evening. Remember this, Tim? And then it was choral. And I drew the line at country and I said, okay, this is, this is enough. <laughs> but but, to, to, but Winston, I, I appreciate that point. I think, uh, yes, I think music should be contextual to your town in your city. If you were to go to Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which has – been pastored uh, for years by Tim Keller, a bit of a missional guru, people would be surprised to discover classical music. There's often like a string quartet or something like that. There's no uh, raucous uh, praise band in uh, Redeemer Presbyterian, and that's in part because he's appealing to the intelligentsia, the, the cultural leaders in New York City, and to me, that makes perfect sense. You can apply this to how you dress the church and many other things, but I think you really do need to take inventory of your neighborhood and adjust your music along the lines of what is known and familiar in one's context.
3: Hey, brothers, it's uh, it's been 45 minutes, this discussion already, so we want to close it up. But I would like to give an opportunity to you, Kent, and to you, Tim, to to add anything else that, that you wanted to say in this discussion. Or if you don't have anything particular that you've, you know, you've been wanting to say, perhaps a word of advice to uh, anybody who might be listening to this podcast that is saying, hey, I'd like to try to improve the music or try to yeah, make, improve the music of our worship service, especially as we think about mission. So either one of you, I want to take a stab at that.
1: Yeah, I don't mind to go first, Winston. I think there's two, two things that I would want to bring out. And every, first of all, everybody's going to have different opinions. And, and they're going to have different, because of the way that, you know, that they've been brought up, the music that they were exposed to as a kid, the music that they're used to singing in the worship services, the music they listen to in the car on the way home. People are going to have different opinions, and those opinions often are strongly held. But I would, I would encourage all of us to use the virtue of, of, of patience. And that goes for all of us. And I'll explain what I mean. When there's change... Those of us who are hesitant about that change, we need to give it a chance. We need to be patient. Let that new music sink in. Sing it a few times. Listen to it in church. Let it happen. And who knows? It might grow on you. For those of us who are eager for the, for, for change, we need patience too. And that simply because we need to meet people where we're at, we need to give them time to get, to get used to, to get used to things. So we need to be patient with each other. The second thing I would bring out and, and this is more of a philosophical statement. And it's something that we've talked about already in the last in the last little while is music connects us. Winston, you talked about the, the horizontal aspect of music and especially in the worship service. It's a way of connecting us. And that's one thing I love to mention the singing in the Canadian Reformed churches. We do sing well. And I I just came from an assembly across the way. We often have guests in our, in our assembly from different traditions, either Christian or sometimes even non-Christian. Almost every assembly, I have somebody telling me, wow, your kids know how to sing. And that's a great way to, uh, it's just a great example of of connection. And I still would argue, not only with each other in the worship service, but also with people, you know, the church triumphant in other times and places with just beyond our immediate location and our immediate point in, in history. So that aspect of music connecting. I think is something that we can we can take and we can we can run with when it comes to church music.
3: Cool. Thanks, Kent. You got anything to add, Tim?
1: Yeah, uh, I would echo uh,
2: the things that Kent just mentioned. And um, I'm thinking of John Calvin when he supervised the creation of the Genevan Psalter. He, he stated that the Psalms allow people to give expression to all kinds of emotions. And I would broaden that idea to music, music itself. It can make people weep. It can make people jump and dance. It can make people go into war and it can bring people together. And all of that emotional effect of music is even stronger if we sing well. So let's keep up the passion to sing well in our church tradition. But like I said earlier, let's learn how to share it with the rest of the world and realize that someone's musical exposure is as unique as their fingerprints and we need to be humbled by that and and we need to be able to listen to that and acknowledge that that there's such a wide variety of musical exposure around us and we can't just claim one tradition and one style uh, to be superior over over a next a, a different style
3: thanks tim Sam and Kent, you guys have both been using your God-given abilities in a whole lot of your time to not just bless your local congregations, but seek to bless, you know, a wide variety of reformed churches through all of your work online, et cetera. Thank you so much for doing that. And thank you so much for doing that again today by being part of this podcast. We really appreciated this conversation with you. Me too. Thanks, Winston. Thanks, Pastor.
0: Thank you, gentlemen.
3: Yeah, thanks for having us. Bill, let's chat a little bit about that interview. I... Liked how Kent was talking at the end about the the role that music plays in connecting people, connecting people across generations, connecting people as they sing together, connecting the church in heaven, the church on earth. It was mentioned in the very beginning, the sort of the emotional role that that music plays. I'd like to take that concept and try to focus us, us a little bit on connecting with the newcomers that come through our doors, the the unbeliever or the new believer, or the person that's simply new to our particular church. And we want the music not just to be connecting to people who have repeated the songs enough times that they know well, but we want it to be able to connect with the newcomer. Now, so maybe I'll ask you this question. Do you think it's reasonable to to think that a newcomer coming into the church is going to have some of that connectability right off the start? Or is it something that they're going to grow into?
0: It's it's a tough thing, uh, Winston, in part because... The unchurched people that we're seeing come to church here in Canada have such diverse backgrounds. But I suspect that if you've grown up in Canada, even if you've been unconnected to a church, you will be familiar with the music of traditional hymns. You will be familiar with the music of Amazing Grace. You will be familiar with the music of Christmas carols, which are essentially Christian hymns. There are in carols and the great hymns, uh, uh, a level of uh, predictability that newcomers to the church can readily recognize. In fact, I remember in Grand Prairie, Alberta, where I pastored, I had an individual who did not grow up in the church, became a believer, and it was so exciting for him to sing Christmas carols in church because now he believed in Jesus. He understood the meaning of those carols. So, yes, I think. But then, on the other hand, to Winston, we have people in our church coming from India or maybe from South America that has an entirely different musical tradition. I'm not sure that traditional hymns even would resonate with those people. So, it's complex in part because the communities in which we find ourselves in Canada are so often international. And I suppose even having said that, there are still some elements to music, Tim mentioned the pentatonic scale, that are still universal and represent singability, regardless of what your cultural background is.
3: Yeah, I think of my own experience, so worshipping in another culture for five years in in West Africa and then worshiping in French for 10 years. In French, you know, I still love some French worship songs that resonated with me, but the music was familiar to me. But worshiping in Africa for five years, I after five years, I still didn't particularly enjoy the music. It, it, you know, I hadn't had, even after five years of repetition, it still didn't speak to my soul. And I've got people in my own church that could have not grown up in a canary church or in a reformed tradition and say that after, you know, five, 10 years, it's they still don't like the music that we sing. And so you're right in that it's complex, and it's difficult. And when you're ministering in a multicultural situation, it's ultra complex, it's difficult. But I think we just because we might not be able to attain something perfect, that just really, you know, speaks to everybody and does a great job in every way. It doesn't mean that we should just say, well, since we can't attain that, let's just stick with what we've always been doing which only really helps people who have grown up in this tradition. So we've got, to, I, would, I would encourage listeners and encourage people to think about, well, how can we do something in order to, to reach the people that are coming through the door so that they might be able to listen to the music, sing the music, appreciate and be encouraged by the words, worship God without sort of getting their tongue tied, you know, as they're trying to work through difficult tunes.
0: Well, and I think one thing churches could do is survey their unchurched guests invite your neighbors to church to answer this question. What did you think of the music? We've done that before at Blessings. We've said, hey, we want you to come to church for no other reason than to offer some commentary on the music. It's a great way, by the way, to get people in the doors of a church because uh, they think, okay, there's no pressure here. I'm part of some kind of uh, sociological uh, sociological study, and I'd be happy I'm not intimidated to come to church and and offer some commentary on it. And you get very, very mixed reactions. And and, uh, it shouldn't be the pastor, by the way, who's asking these questions, because I've found that people often want to compliment the pastor. And so their assessments of the music tend to be far more positive than they would be of a lay person asking those kinds of questions. But I, I, I like the idea of surveys and just getting feedback from the diversity of people that you have coming to church about your music, what they think of it.
3: I guess the other thing that I would want to talk about is they both mentioned how one of the distinctives that canary Form churches have is that people sing well and that we don't want to lose that. We want to encourage that. That was a good challenge for me. Like I, I have not been doing a whole lot of singing in catechism classes, for instance, because on a Tuesday night, a bunch of, you know, high schoolers don't really want to sing much. We used to have somebody that about once a month after a worship service would go through one of the songs, psalms or hymns that we have and teach us how to sing it well and that we, you know, there was a noticeable difference for the following Sunday when we would sing that properly and sing that well. That was really good. Got any other thoughts on, on trying to encourage us to sing well? And then also when you've got new believers come through the door, you're ushering somebody toward the Lord's Supper table, toward church membership. Is there anything about discipling them in being able to sing well with the congregation? Is there, is there anything to that?
0: Well, that's a very good question. I really haven't given much thought to that. I think at, at Blessings, you know, where we've introduced a repertoire of contemporary hymns, we have come to recognize, as Tim pointed out, that some of these contemporary songs themselves are not that singable. I would, I would propose this, the song Oceans as an example of that. Very popular, well-loved, not exactly the greatest song for congregational singing, and when i worship with christians in other venues i discover that it's often the worship team singing and not the assembly singing so i think it really is a unique feature of canadian reformed church life that we have such robust congregational singing and for, i mean i can only speak on behalf of blessings i think that's in part because we've we've privileged those songs that we deem Singable, but have this level of predictability and, and repetition that kind of generates that mm. result.
3: Yeah. So everybody can start maybe like this go and invite your neighbor to your home for dinner and then sing with them around the table so that by the time they come into church, they already know the songs. <laughs> All right, let's leave it there, Bill. This has been a good discussion. Thanks so much, brother.
0: Thanks, Winston.